Welcome to Living Off Course. Join us if you're fascinated by people who break free of societal norms to live life on their own terms. I'm Zita Moran, and with my co-host, Janie Lim, we're exploring what it takes to live a life that's authentically yours. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Living Off Course, where we interview Kevin O'Connor. Kevin's had a colorful life, overcoming hardship, following his curiosity, and seizing opportunities where he finds them, and often inventing his own. Today, we talk about how he toured the world as a professional mime for 12 years, then transitioned into becoming a successful serial entrepreneur, inspirational speaker, amateur musician, and now author. We delve into how he tackled the fear of failure, how he approaches self-reinvention, starting a family, and Kevin's secrets to success. Without further ado, let's jump right in. Okay, so you've lived a fascinating life. Let's start with uh, going into mime. Is that what you did as your first career? Kind of, yeah. I was putting myself through college back in the 70s. Didn't have any money. Family didn't have any money. I was the first person in my entire extended family, cousins, etc., to go to college. And somewhere along the line, I had seen a mime performance and went, I just thought it was magical to me. And I thought, well, that would be a hoot to learn some more about that. And then I was finishing my degree. I was at SUNY Empire State, which was a college program for professionals. My degree was in counseling psychology. I was working in a program, a social service program called Youth Advocates. And I had the opportunity before that to go finish my degree in Europe. And so it was an independent study program through the State University of New York. And I just had a few more credits to finish. And I thought, I'm going to go to Europe and study mime and clowning. What the hell? <laughs> and I had never been out of the country. In fact, I think it was only after I turned about 18 that I had gone more than 150 miles away from where I grew up. So here I was in, in Europe studying theater, and it was a life-changing event for me because, A, it expanded my horizons from that little enclave that I grew up in to being around the world that were having an artistic pursuit. When I came back to Philadelphia, the bug was definitely there. It was no longer just, uh, let me try this thing out. It was, let's see what we can make of this. And I started taking classes in Philadelphia, and believe it or not, Philly at that time was this mime enclave going on. I don't know why exactly. And there were some fantastic performers who had lots of stage experience. I met somebody there who became my partner in my partner in mime and crime. <laughs> and we created a just kind of for a kick. We called it Quiet Riot Comedy Theater Company. And we were doing traditional mime and storytelling. And within about a nine month period, we realized that the white face was no longer what we wanted to do that was too restrictive. And we created a kind of movement comedy theater show that used mime and many different disciplines. And we ended up touring for 12 years. I mean, not straight 12 years, but we were on stage all over the country, a little bit around the world, but mostly in the US. And we met some amazing people whose names you would recognize on the road, like Penn and Teller and others that uh, ended up with a fabulously big career. So it was fun. And you did that alongside normal job? A normal no, job. No, that became my normal job. <laughs> that and is I'm not, incredible. 
Yeah, I'm not going to tell you one gets rich from that normal job, but we made a living and learned a lot. And that became the foundation because we were small. There were three of us, a guy who ran all the backstage stuff, two of us on stage. And as I said, you know, we performed at Carnegie Hall to college campuses with 200 people watching to 2,000 people watching. So I learned a tremendous amount about, you know, being present and also learned the business side of running that and that led me to when I decided to retire from performing because I didn't want to be away the amount of time we just started family and it was time to kind of think about making money and doing other things and so the business foundation I learned in promoting our theater company became a foundation now for seeking something else. Okay, so that's a fantastic. So in terms of the business side of it, was that um, just an intuitive learning or did you go to school? No, it was completely just hit and miss because somebody had to book us and make all the <laughs> arrangements and negotiate the contracts and do all those things, right? And or else we were going to starve to death. And so we got quite good at it. And primarily myself and one of the other partners did pretty much all of the business side of that. And so, you know, learning to negotiate contracts. No, I had no schooling. I was going to do counseling psychology. Wow. <laughs> So that's a case of just jumping in the deep end and having uh, to yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> So was it mostly word of mouth that you got new gigs? I don't know whether this still happens or not, but we ended up becoming a really hot ticket in the college circuit. So what would happen is there were conferences where you would go perform in front of the student committees, I guess. And these are big conferences. These were not like, you know, there might be, 3,000 people there who represented 2,000 universities, and they had big budgets, and they were going to spend money there booking you. And so doing that really put the foundation there. And then as the word went out that we got great reviews, we were written up, next thing you know, we're getting calls. And then once you say, let's, you're going to tour New England, now we'd start calling community theaters and places where we could add on additional dates and make additional money. And then we go on the road for three, four weeks and perform and come back and wait a few weeks and go do it again. Wow. It sounds like it requires quite a lot of stamina doing all of that. Well. Yeah, but, you know, we were we were young and ambitious and loved what we were doing. I frequently think about if I could do it again, knowing what I know now, how much better it would be. Okay, that's interesting. So what of that would you apply to it? What? Oh, if we had money? <laughs> I mean, really, real money to do staging properly and have effects. I mean, we were pretty much what we could pile on the back of a, a, a little trailer was our stage set. And we didn't need much because we were doing a lot of mime in the mm -hmm. theater. So you don't need a lot of sets. But if you think of Blue Man Group or Penn and Teller and some of the other kind of movement theater companies that, not that Penn and Teller are movement theater, but they blend a lot of that. They've got much more elaborate stage settings and, and it would be would have been fun to have been able to go that direction. But for what we had, which was, you know, low budget and we did pretty darn good. So was that a golden chapter in your life? Would you say that time? I would say that it was a golden chapter. And most importantly, because I wanted to hit the big time. I mean, really be big. And I could tell that that probably wasn't going to happen. We were raising kids, the price that we'd have to pay to really do it. I could tell was that was waning. It was on the downside. But I knew that once you've been exposed to that kind of life and the ability to get up and entertain people without 
trepidation meant that I could now take that and bring it somewhere else. It's um, really fascinating, yeah. No, I was just because I know that you're a motivational speaker now. And well, kind of. <laughs> as Jen put it in uh, a podcast episode with you, she's like, you're a professional inspirer. I think it's how she put it. Oh, I love that. Wow. Benevolent dictator. So we'll get yeah. into that. <laughs> Kevin the benevolent. Yes. How did you segue then? I know you were saying that it was kind of your priorities changed because you were starting a family and you wanted to be at home more. But how was the transition from you touring for 12 years then into, did you go straight into business? Well, as normal for me, I don't choose normal. So I had not a clue in the world what I was going to do. I did know, actually, that I wanted time freedom and I wanted to make money. Not because I needed to have a lot of things, but I, I knew that I wanted to be independent, meaning I didn't have any money to start a traditional business, nor did I want a brick and mortar kind of business. I wanted something that would allow me freedom, that would allow me growth, that would kind of let me expand by not only income-wise, but expand myself, my horizons, my brain, my abilities, et cetera. And it's actually a story I tell because I work these days with network marketing companies. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. Yeah. I'm a true story. I was in an elevator downtown Philly. Don't ask me what I was doing there. Clearly going to meet somebody for something up on an upper floor in a high rise. And it's me and a postman. And you know, elevator behavior, you know, what do people do? And I happen to look at this guy and he's got a smile from ear to ear. And I just belted out, how are you today? He goes, man, I am so good. If I keep on doing what I'm doing, I'll make so much money. I get to put this bag down for the rest of my life. What the heck are you talking about? And so the elevator stops. It's not my floor. He gets out. I jump out right after him. What are you doing? And it was a really big lesson that curiosity is always such a prime motivator for people. I needed to know the answer to this question. And he said, well, I got to go deliver the mail. I can't talk to you right now. Give me your number and I'll get back to you. We'll set up a time. So I got introduced to this crazy world of independent entrepreneurs who worked through a company but had their own businesses. And what was really struck me was that they were making more money in a month than I was going to make in the next two years doing what I'd been doing. And so I was really curious, but re what really got me was these were teachers and truck drivers and railroad conductors and housewives. And wait a minute, there's no PhDs, no lawyers, no advanced degrees going on here, yet they're doing this. And it just, my mind went, Poosh. problem was, I didn't know what to do. And so I did know that I needed to become a student and learn from people. And, and that is such an important foundation for everything else that I've done in my life is if there's something that you want, find somebody who's got there first and find out how they did it. And don't mess with the formula too much because <laughs> they made it there. If you can steal from them in the best sense of that term, then you can become a student of life no matter what the calling may be. And so that led me into becoming an independent entrepreneur, which led me to building sales teams around the world, which is why I've traveled to six of the seven continents. There's a, a common theme that comes up um, with all our guests. It's really about following the opportunity. So you spotted mm -hmm. an opportunity and you just felt like uh, you had to seize the opportunity. The curiosity is the key. Yeah. I mean, think about where we'd be on the planet without curiosity. We'd still be sitting in the cave 
worried about the uh, saber-toothed tigers outside, right? But yeah, so, it's really interesting. If you just hadn't talked to that guy, then you might be in a very different position now. Absolutely. Yeah, it's just those moments. And I could have been shy and not cut off the elevator. I could have done all kinds of things. You know, and this is the one of the next lessons. People aren't, I mean, lessons for me. It's all about timing in people's lives, whether they see that opportunity that's knocking on their door right now or something needs to happen. They open that door three years later. It's about timing. And I happen to be looking. So my perceptors were receptors were way open and I was looking. So when somebody said that line, I get to put this bag down for the rest of my life. Like, okay, I need to know what this guy's doing. So, Kevin, I'd love to know at the time, just because, um, like, let's just tackle it. Like, from my understanding is that there's some negative connotation with uh, multi-level marketing and network marketing. And what, was it the same thing at the time that you got into it? Oh, it was, given the fact that I did, never heard of it before, I didn't know that there was a negative connotation at that point. This is back in 1987. And so I subsequently learned that there seemed to be, is it a pyramid? Is it a scam? Is it this, that, the other thing? And the reality is today that almost never comes up. It's an enormously huge enterprise globally. And what I love about it is that it's not for everybody. Most people aren't going to make a ton of money, but if you've got a good company with good products, you're helping people. And part of the the awakening for me was, particularly in the last 10 years, uh, having the opportunity to travel and to see the impact building a team, say, in Philippines or in Peru, where two, $300 a month is a trajectory to an entire new life for a family. And that you are part of that empowerment that brings a business system. So if you think about it closer to a franchise, you don't have to pay for that. It's a business system that somebody can duplicate and make that extra three, four, five hundred dollars a month, which puts books into kids' hands and maybe a computer for the family, food on the table. Being that up close and personal with this industry is been phenomenal to see the impact that it has on people's lives. And again, if the products are good and life-changing, you have the additional satisfaction of seeing people's lives change in terms of health, wellness, and maybe for the first time, really thinking about those things rather than it being waiting till you become ill. What if you actually took some steps and prevented that illness to begin with? And so in the first world countries, you know, we know more about that. And I can tell you in a lot of the developing countries that certainly has changed in the last 10 years, the awareness of wellness and health and financial opportunity have grown. But now you take it into this environment right now, today with everybody being locked down, my, this is normal for me to be stuck at home. I don't think of myself as stuck at home. I have a home-based business. I have money coming in regardless of what's going on out there. I don't depend on a place being a job that's been shut down and I'm longing to go back to. And I feel for those people, but I really wish that they had that extra $1,200 or $1,500 from their little side network marketing business. And that's what this industry gives people is that opportunity. So I really don't. I mean, it's very rare to hear anymore. Is it one of those pyramids? People may not have the right word for it, but they don't actually mean a negative connotation anymore. It's so rare just because network marketing Revenues globally are bigger than the NFL, the online gaming, the music industry, and the film industry combined. I guess maybe I wonder if that's because we trust each other, kind of if it's through a network, people prefer to buy from people that they know. Bingo, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly why it is. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear you talk about that because it's exactly how 
about the people being independent and not reliant on companies for, um, as in not reliant on a day job. It right. sounds so modern, I suppose, to us who have been brought up with, I don't know if you've heard of like the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss. Sure. So I guess as a digital nomads, we kind of feel like, oh, it's uh, really new, but it's not. It's something that I know Jen was saying you were one of the original remote workers where you just had a fax machine. So did you live in different countries for periods of time or it was more kind of? Well, so I had, um, so in 1987, I was introduced to the guy in the elevator and ended up working in that business for a number of years and then had a hiatus and ended up, I'm not sure it was the smartest move in my life, but again, it was an amazing education. One of my clients for that business, the guy in the elevator was a financial services company. And I had a client that was a small factory, Korean owned, Korean immigrants in Philadelphia. It was a sewing factory. And they had frequently complained to me that they did extraordinary work, but they were underutilized. So, you know, they had all these machines that were sitting empty and they could have been employing more people. And, you know, so it was kind of like, so if you know anybody, you know, any companies that need our kind of work, well, a good friend of mine was a investment banker and he would, you know, for a very big bank and the public companies would come and do their dog and pony show for the institutional investors. And a lot of them were clothing companies. And so I said, well, you know, why don't we give this a shot? Just again, help these people out. And so I, I became kind of on the side, uh, their sales rep, if you will. And within about six months, we had the factory booked out for two years. We completely maxed the capacity. So my partner was from Haiti originally, and he had family that were in business there. And so we went and thought, okay, let's see what we can do, bringing business to that factory. Haiti is remains and was then certainly a dirt poor place and employment and medical care. We thought, wow, if we could really make an impact doing this. So we just almost overnight built, because they they did a really good job, they did jeans. And we had booked huge amounts of business. When I say huge, I'm talking, we had signed a three-year multi-million dollar contract with Calvin Klein. I, you know, I had been to Haiti and then there was a coup they overthrew the, the president, Dan Aristide, and Jimmy Carter was president at the time and said, we're going to have an embargo. You've got six months if you've got business there to get everything out. And we were out of business basically overnight. That cargo, that, that contract with Calvin Klein was canceled immediately. And not to be, again, if you're going to get knocked down, try and land this way so you're looking up. His wife, my partner's wife, uh, was from Jamaica. And they had people, family in the business, much smaller scale. And so we thought, well, let's keep this thing going. And we started bringing business into Jamaica. Next thing you know, we just grew really, really fast. We were, we had maybe five factories we were bringing business to. And so we were repping them. I was going to New York all the time. And then little company called Fruit of the Loom came along and said, hey, we hear about you guys. Tell you what, if you'll open your own factory, we'll sign a multi-million dollar multi-year contract. Stupidest move we ever made. And really? the reason is, never ran a factory. I don't know how to turn on a sewing machine, never mind use one. Don't know how to run a factory, but we thought we could hire really good people. What we didn't know was that Fruit of the Loom was building their own factories in El Salvador and Mexico. And as soon as they got operational, they canceled our contract, said Suez, we're a big company, we'll tie you up in court for years. And I was up to my eyeballs in debt because not only did we lose money, but we were trying to keep the factory open out of our own savings, et cetera. And probably the part Jen doesn't remember is that it was a really, really a tough, dark time because again, I was broke. I had no idea what, what I was going to do. I thought I learned all this stuff about network marketing. 
and I knew people could make good money and I was desperate. So I decided to jump back in, give it a shot. And I was debt free in about 12 months. That's why oh I love gosh. <laughs> So you hadn't been doing network marketing before then. You kind of learned it from the postman. I did it for about three years, did the clothing business for about seven. And then out of pure desperation, having no idea what else I could do, I thought I got to act like my life depends on this. And it did. And like I said, I just happened to choose a great company with a great product and just our growth went like that and again, dead free in, in about a year. From my understanding, were you involved from the early stages? I was in that the... company, yeah. This was a company called Four Life back in 1997 when okay. I joined them. And okay. it, so I was at the very early stage of that. And that helps because the industry itself has become much more sophisticated. A lot of people think we well, had to be first in to make the big money and all that. The reality is people will join that same company today and have the same kind of growth because the world's big because of these kinds of platforms. I mean, I was on a webinar that was global on Saturday, and I believe there were something like 13,000, 14,000 people on from Australia straight through Europe to South Africa. And so you can do this kind of thing because the technology, we're not the fax machine economy. Of course, you already know that. So for digital nomads, what a fantastic time in general to be alive, but particularly if you can make money and make impact during a time when most people are frightened and probably going stir crazy. Can I ask you how you chose the company to work for, like uh, the product that you wanted to represent? So I had a a friendship with a guy who had been on the kind of executive side of other network marketing companies. And he called and said, hey, I've just uh, got hired as the national sales director for this company. Take a look at it. I think the product's going to be amazing. Uh, It was an immune system product and it was amazing. And we actually had so many doctors joining us to make your head spin because the product was that good and scientifically based. It was really through that relationship that I learned about that company. Today, because of my experience, I wouldn't necessarily need to have a relationship. In fact, probably just the opposite. I would just examine the companies that I thought were really ethical and good and had a global footprint and watch and interview them. So it's kind of the other way around now. So, But only because I've had the education, not because I'm a big shot or anything like that, but I do have a track record. So that helps. But it's like anything else. You you know, as a digital nomad, people have to make choices about where they're going to put their focus and energy. Hopefully they have some passion for what they're doing. Hopefully if they don't have the skill for what they're doing yet, that they're willing to be patient and let that skill take its natural course of time. Yeah, I'm really fascinated by it for someone like you who's had such a varied career. Would you say is kind of an underpinning strength of yours that has kind of been there throughout all of your careers, if that makes sense? What is the thread you mean? Yeah, what is the thread kind of, it's just fascinating that you went from performing arts to being successful in two different kinds of businesses and what kept you going and what made you successful at these different careers? Great question and a question I think about actually pretty frequently. I think that because I grew up in a household, just give you a quick rundown on that, you know, working class neighborhood, my dad was not wealth most of my life. And I was 11 years old. He walks out from dining room table, sits down in his chair, calls out my mom's name and falls down with a heart attack and died in front of me. That's a, right? Wow. How the hell do you deal with that? Maybe even worse was that my grandfather who lived with us our entire life, about six months later, he died 
from what we would now call Alzheimer's, I think. And my sister, who had type 1 diabetes, about a year later passed away from complications of diabetes. And so not only did we not have money, but now three sources of income left our household. I have two brothers. And I watched my mother having to negotiate this, not only the pain, the trauma from all that, but really just the financial burden. And I don't know that she could ever explain how she actually did it. I mean, if that happened to me, I particularly burying your child, you go, what fortitude gives you this? And so for me, it was that I just for some whatever reason, I wanted the independence to be able to make my own choices. I know that for my parents, that wasn't a reality. It was scrapped by as best you could. And then watching my mom, because she had to raise three other kids, have the discipline and the fortitude to keep moving forward was a immense inspiration to me. And so that translated for me in, if I believe I can do this, and this is where I'm supposed to be, then how the hell is giving up an option? Not an option. I had to be able to do it. And luckily, I really did have a clear understanding that if, go back to that original network marketing company, I told you it was teachers and truck drivers. And I think the thing that sustained me, because there were lots of ups and downs, the thing that sustained me was that I didn't necessarily think I was any better than them, but I thought I was at least as good. And that if I was at least as good, then I should be able to do what they have done. Whether that takes place today or five years from now, that's kind of up to me to learn and, and study and have the determination to see that through. And so it was almost always that I would go back and think about, hey, if my mom gave up on us, where would we have been? And so that strength. And watching that, such a gift to me. And so she didn't give up. And my feeling was, if this is what I really, truly want, I can't quit on myself. Wow. That's an incredible story. Would you say your mom was your first kind of role model? Or what role models have you had through life? I would say she was definitely a, a role model. She was also a larger-than-life character. She could crush <laughs> under the table, drinking under the table. I mean, she was funny. She was strict. She was forgiving. She was a pain in the butt. She was all those things. But again, when it counted, she was always there. She had to get it done, and she did. And so in terms of other role models, of course, you know, as I said, I think mentorship is so invaluable. And I also believe that you don't have to know that mentor, meaning you don't have to have met that person. You don't have to be able to have a conversation with that person. If you find somebody who's done what you think you would love to do, study them, learn from them, they may be long gone, but can read their books, watch their this, you know, hear the stories, and you can learn from those. I think that one of the biggest mistakes people make is, of course, you've got to bring your own creativity to the table. You've got to bring your own passion to the table. But there's no reason not to look at somebody. Tim Ferriss is probably a great example why his books have become so popular, why I still listen to his podcast, that he's done what I want to do. Therefore, what about what he's doing can I learn for myself? So mentorship, choose your mentor. Choose wisely because they're not yeah. going to lead you to the promised land. But learning from others, I mean, who was it? I just, again, one of my favorite quotes, you asked about quotes, but something like a smart person learns from their own mistakes. A person with wisdom learns from others' mistakes. And so yeah. being able to study the best and the mistakes that people make. And then for me, you had asked about quote, and the quote that I think is particularly important right now is from one of my 
all-time favorite books, which is Dune by Frank Herbert. Fear is the mind killer. And I'm seeing a lot of that going around in memes on Instagram, etc. But it's important because, you know, fear is a natural thing. It's not a bad thing. You know, if you see a snake or a rhino coming at you and you go, hey, I don't, I'm not afraid of anything. Well, you're just stupid. You're about to die, right? <laughs> yeah. But fear is a natural consequence of trying something different. I think the biggest fear people have and why a lot of digital nomads give it a shot and then go home and say, you know, it's not for me, is because they were afraid to fail. That is the one fear that you have to conquer. Of course, people are afraid to fail, but you'll never get anywhere if you let that rule what you're doing. So if you're going to do it, do it as big as you can and be willing to plow through your own fear and your own hesitation. And you might come to the logical conclusion, after all, it's not for me. That's fine. Go find something that is. But yeah, don't yeah. let fear of failure be the determinant of that. Yeah, it's such a big one. I know people like, do you know Gary Vaynerchuk? I do, yeah. Yeah, he goes on about how much he loves failing. And it makes so much sense because if you're failing, you're trying and you're growing because what is it? Some people call it first attempt in learning is F-A-I-L. And when you get caught in the fear, it can just, you need to get out of outside of that. Was it your role models or what was it that helped you get through that inevitable fear that you must have had of trying? You, you seem to have tried so many different things and succeeded. And still am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm trying different things, but great question. I think my learning was that failing was never going to be permanent. And the reason it was never going to be permanent was that I wasn't going to let it. That goes back to my dream was much bigger than the fear. And I actively maintained that mindset, meaning I could have said, you know, I could have justified any twist and turn. This happened. So therefore, if that hadn't happened, maybe something better would have come. No, it was, I know where I want to be. I know where I'm going. I know fear is going to come pay a visit. I know obstacles are going to come pay a visit. And a mentor had once said, I don't think it was his quote, but in every obstacle is an equivalent opportunity. And he said something really whacked out that most people would never get. If that's true, then may as many obstacles come my way as quickly as possible. <laughs> Let me work through them so that I get an even bigger opportunity. And I thought that made sense to me. So bring it on because I'm not going to learn any other way. Wow, that's wow. I feel like I'm getting wiser by the moment. I have tons of notes that I'm going to follow up on. <laughs> I love this impermanence of failure. I'm really curious, Kevin, were you like always just a gregarious, outgoing child? So I'm very curious at this um, willingness to just uh, put yourself out there as somebody who's an introvert and, and quite shy, actually. Uh, like I'm fascinated by people who do that. Was it just natural for you to go on stage and, or did you have to manage that fear? It's hard to think back into too early of a childhood, right? But I was always one of those kids that was putting on shows and out on the front yard and if not requiring attention, certainly trying to figure out how to command attention. <laughs> I was in theater in high school and the one gift that I wish that I truly had would be if I could give it all up and become Bruce Springsteen or Van Morrison, I would be happy to do it. I just don't, you would, you would pay me not to sing. So <laughs> I'm without. But when I was, I love music. I mean, I love music. And so, again, we grew up poor, couldn't afford guitar lessons, piano lessons, couldn't afford a guitar or a piano, even if we did have the lessons. So I turned to harmonica. And I talk about mentors and mentorship. 
I spent years playing to these records in my little bedroom. And one day I'm sitting playing outside uh, of, of school and this gentleman gets off of like, probably think a UPS truck or something, black gentleman, and he stops and he listens and he goes, where did you learn to play like that? My grandfather used to play like that. And I thought, well, maybe I learned from your grandfather. <laughs> and the point being that, again, I needed a musical outlet. I had a real desire to do this. And so how was I going to learn? I just bought home LPs and played them until I couldn't play them anymore. Well, actually, until I could copy what they were doing. And then eventually picked up my own style based on all that years of playing. That is, wow. again, you show in every all of these examples, it's your determination really stands out as well. Like you get an idea and you go, okay, I'm going to master it. Yeah, that's amazing. So what is it called? The, oh my gosh, harmonica? I just got blank. Yeah. The harmonica. Yes. I was going to call it a harpsichord. <laughs> no, but people, people refer to it as a harp. So the nickname for a harmonica is a harp. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. I've never heard that. I just want to get this clear. You're a self-taught musician? I think calling myself a musician would be an extravagant use of the word, but I am <laughs> yeah. I don't think oh, so. We saw you. Both of us yeah. have watched your video on your website of you playing. Oh, okay. and, you're uh, fantastic. You, you're brilliant. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah, I can I can sing in with most bands for a couple songs. So you didn't know the music behind it? You literally just learned through a visceral experience? Yeah, I, I couldn't read a note if you paid me. That's amazing. I don't think I've heard that before. Yeah. It's incredible. And then you developed your own style. Yeah, because there's so many. That's one of the cool things about that instrument is I've listened to people play Bach uh, backed by Philharmonics. And I've watched um, people in the Mississippi Delta with nothing but a harmonica and a, and a guitar just make magic with it. So it's all kinds of styles. That's amazing. And do you still play? I do. Okay, beautiful. Not, not as much as I used to. And unfortunately, I can't go to jam sessions anytime soon because yeah. all close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you play any other instruments? I studied flute for a little while, and I did not sustain that, but I, I like to play. Do you know what a penny whistle is? Yeah. No. So I'll show you one. It's a very inexpensive, this is made of metal. It is largely an Irish instrument, and you will hear most Irish bands will have a whistle player uh, who probably also plays flute and other things. But if you look up some Irish music, you'll see Definitely. amazing sounds come from this, which I can't do. But <laughs> maybe, maybe in a year or three, I'll, I'll focus on that. <laughs> wow. Actually, I, I did want to ask you, well, a couple things. One is, uh, what's next? You said in a year or two, maybe you'll become a world-famous penny whistle player? No, no, no I, I don't aspire to that. So in my 20s, I loved literature, and I read tons of literature, and I never picked up a thriller. My wife, however, was a thriller reader, meaning a thriller novel. Yeah. You know, Jason Bourne and Robert Ludlum, you know, all that <laughs> kind of stuff. And I picked up one and I thought, you know, I'm not going to like this because I love literature, you know. And I was <laughs> hooked, completely hooked at the pace at which a story could evolve. And then I learned that there were people who used the thriller genre to really put ideas out there. So it wasn't just about the pace and one man's going to save the world, da 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 da. It was, you could really utilize a thriller to teach other things or to express other ideas. And I had started to write back then and life took over and my mind career was taking off and I, I didn't pay much attention. 
but it had been one of those things sitting there on the edge calling to me over the last couple of years. And I had a bunch of ideas I wanted to try out and I started to write a novel close to two years ago. And I have completed that. And I've hired a professional editor and critiquer who will guide me through, you know, where are the things that aren't working in the story that, well, that process begins in June. And then I'm going to do my best to get as many rejection letters from publishers as I can until one says yes. <laughs> wow. So it, it is a thriller. So I use the thriller genre of to create a story that people want to go, what's next? What's next? What's next? Hopefully I've accomplished that. But I'm exploring a whole lot of ideas. It's set in Philadelphia where I live. When we had that Fruit of Loom business, it was in Jamaica and I actually lived there for close to five years. I wasn't there all the time. I'd come home, spend you know a month. I'd go back, spend a month, you know, that kind of thing. But really got to know the country. And that was also part of my love of travel and getting to know a place. And it's also set in Ireland and I have dual citizenship. My grandparents are Irish immigrants. And as a result, I was able to become a Irish citizen, EU passport. So I, I have spent over the years, a lot of time in Ireland, but particularly in the last two years doing research. So that's the setting. The theme is really about change and motivation, genetics, gene editing, the diasporas of Africa and Ireland and how they merge here in the U.S. So it explores a whole lot of different themes all through this one thread of this thriller story. You can think of a, a name, including J.K. Rowling, every single person got 50 no's from publishing houses, mm. and yet they persisted until that one said yes. And of course, now you would go, who would say no to, to Harry Potter? Well, a lot of A lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Right. She persisted. And uh, so I don't know the outcome, but I realized at the beginning of it was write it for yourself and hope it's something other people will like because I don't, you don't know whether it's good or it's bad until other people tell you it's good or it's bad. Are you also considering self publishing? I will consider that if after the hundredth rejection, I'm feeling like, okay, <laughs> maybe it's time to consider that. But I think self publishing can be the graveyard for ideas and books, unless you've got good SEO, a good digital nomad who knows what he or she is doing there and get you out there because otherwise people won't find you. However, it turns out I've learned that if your book does pretty well, say like actually a friend of mine, I didn't even know this, found out yesterday she had published a book, self published, and once you get 50 reviews on Amazon, they'll start matching you up. People also search for, and there you are. You have that 50 mm -hmm. reviews. So I think that's doable. And what's nice is with self-publishing, some people have made a tremendous amount of money doing self-publishing because they know how to promote. And then what's happened is, and there's some big names, I don't remember who, because I just write recently, but who were discovered in the self-publishing world and then moved over to a big publishing house because the writing was that good and they already had a following. So we'll see, but I would prefer to um, yeah, just see if I could, could attract a publisher. Definitely. Yeah. So did you enjoy the writing process? Every minute of it. I really did. I loved it. And I'm just, I'm trying to decide whether I just move everything else out of the way and just focus on that because I set the book up to have a sequel and I'm, part of the book goes back into the Middle Ages, part of the book goes back to the early 1900s in Ireland, but it's actually, the whole thing is contemporary. And so as I finish the book, in January, along comes something called Corona. And you can't pick a story up logically. You could not write. So the story ends, and I ended it with no notion of Corona at all. But I literally ended the book just as Corona was, were becoming aware of it. 
the sequel was supposed to start in January of 2020. That's what I set it up for. And you can't tell a story in 2020 if you don't bring in Corona. And so because a lot of the story is about gene editing and this brave new world we're moving into in terms of uh, genetics and gene editing, which a lot of it is a really big positive for health and medicine, et cetera. But there's also some Frankenstein potential in there. Everybody's wondering, is that what happened in China? Yeah, I don't think they were making a weapon. I think just one. So as, as an example, in the scientific community, you are not allowed to create what they call CRISPR babies. CRISPR is a technology that's very simple for scientists and they can gene edit. So they could, for example, that you have the controversy over GMOs in your food, right? Which used to be a really big problem. What it could mean right now is simply they studied this particular gene, identified that this allows this particular plant to be very susceptible to a particular fungus and could destroy crops all over the world. Well, what if we remove that gene that made it susceptible and grew it so it wouldn't have that problem. So that's modern gene editing. Well, a scientist in China made two CRISPR babies, literally gene edited two babies completely in jail right now. It's crazy. So the entire scientific community went, but the cat's out of the bag. That potential, that possibility is there. And so here I've ended this book and then all of a sudden Corona comes along. I had to add a chapter that set it up for now telling that story. It's kind of the, in any obstacle, there's an opportunity. And that just reminded me of what you said earlier. So I haven't, I haven't started in full earnest on that because I'm still tidying up what I've, the, the first one, but you know, I was going down a particular path and that, that path had to do with uh, genetic modification of medical marijuana, which is actually happening. And it's a fascinating story of which there could be some Frankenstein consequences, or it could be a gift to people with cancer, as an example. It's a very thin line between ethically where you can go with that. And so to package that into a thriller, I mean, it's a lot of fun. Coronavirus is not a lot of fun, but it's here. So it has to be part of the story. And you're absolutely right. So therefore, you have to be adaptable and go, like, I can't change the dates because the entire story is also has an underpinning of what happened in Ireland and Northern Ireland with Brexit. And those okay. dates are firm. So the story ended where the story ended because of I was actually writing it to those dates. I had to actually pause writing for a while to see the outcome of what was going to happen with Brexit to be able to under know if that story was going to fit any longer. Yeah, I bet, I bet it was it annoying, but it just kept on extending. <laughs> It ended up playing really, really well because it was it was in December when, for the very first time, the unionists, the, those who wanted to stay with England, actually lost their majority. First time in the history of Northern Ireland. And that changes a lot. And the Scottish National Party, who also wants to secede from England, also won a majority. And so there's this big sea change of a story. And I was going in those directions. And then Corona. That's exciting. I mean, not Corona is exciting, but no, um, no. your your book sounds fascinating. I hope it maintains it when you get to read it. So. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. I really appreciate that. And I'm actually really glad I asked the question because I don't know why I'm surprised, but that came out of left field. But that's just uh, seems like your MO now. Yeah. That you're just constantly reinventing yourself. That's one of the, the other things I think about a lot is that people get stuck. And particularly, I think people... 67. And people get stuck thinking, well, it's too late. I'm too old. I'm this. I'm that. You're going to be 70 anyway. You're going to be 90 anyway. You're going to be 30 anyway. 
find what you want to do and do it. And don't let any of that have one ounce of influence. There's never not a time to reinvent yourself if you choose. Yeah, well, your life seems to be an utter example of that. I'd really love to know what are the books that have been most influential for you throughout your life? I read a lot of different things. I read lots of nonfiction as well, which is very influential. I would say that probably Dune was one of the most influential books in my life. And the reason is that, although, again, it's using science fiction as its trajectory to create this world, the book is really about what happens when mythologies, particularly religious mythologies, morph through thousands of generations into other planets and times. I don't know if you've ever read Dune, but it is, its mythologies are Islam and Christianity and what happens 3,000 years from now to those stories as they've morphed through people who live on many other planets. And so you'll recognize some of that mythology and how it's continued, but completely changed. And I think the reason I find that valuable is that we hold these truths to be self-evident. I read this, I read the Bible, I read the Quran, I don't know. And so we get these structures built into our brains and our behavior, when in fact, they won't look anything. People will think that they know the same story that you have a thousand years from now, but it won't look anything like that. But they will believe that they're following those strictures, but those will have changed. They have to, because humans will make them change over time. And so my point in all that is that as you are kind of contemplating the universe, you don't have to stick a big cage around it. Open that thing up and just let it go out there and then decide if you like that little cage, eh, no problem. Go put that stricture on yourself. But it's really important now and again to just break that open. One of my favorite quotes is actually that when the mind expands because of idea of travel, of social media, whatever it may be, it can never come back to the same shape. It's impossible. That particular quote is one that I was told way back in the 80s when I was in that first company. And I think it's immensely true. And I'm an example of that. I'd never left the country and then I go off and and live in Europe for three months. My mind could never fit back into its old box. It was impossible. Yeah. We, anybody who's, particularly I think travel does that for you as well when you just, you experience different things. I was listening to something that was saying it's like being a snake and going back, trying to go back into an old snake skin that you've shed. Yeah. It's just impossible. You can't go back and be the same person. Do you believe in magic, Kevin? You mean, do I believe in magic as in a magician? Or do I believe that magic can happen? Actually, maybe define it like your definition of magic and if you believe in it. Such an interesting question because I've also got a pretty rigorous scientific mind. Yes, I can tell. That's why I'm wondering. I want to know, okay, you tell me this. You want me to believe this. Show me why. Do I believe that there is a place for imagination to really let loose? The answer is, I think there's so much more to the universe than our perception is capable of fully understanding. That doesn't mean there's not magic. It doesn't mean that somebody can cook up a witch's brew and cure something. I think you have to be open to that possibility, but you also have to be skeptical of when somebody says they they can do magic. So there's magicians and illusionists But you'll see in the story, I purposely crossed that line. And I think that's fun because I want to challenge my own limited thinking. And one of the ways to do that is to talk about the unexplainable as if one doesn't need to explain it because it should be apparent. 
Wow, that's fantastic. Arthur C. Clarke has his quote, any sufficiently developed technology appears to be magic. So Kevin, before we let you go, I want to ask, is there anything that you want to promote? Is there anything you want to plug, recommend to anyone? Other than my best-selling book? Yeah. (laughs) Soon to be released. (laughs) The thing thing I'd like to promote to anybody that, that listens to this is, I think, particularly in a moment that we're in, the question becomes, it's inevitable, we are in it, right? There's fear, there's anxiety, but there's also opportunity. So while you are in this lockdown, having something precious that's precious, but frequently doesn't happen in our lives, and that is quiet time, doesn't have to be filled by TV and nothing wrong with that. It doesn't have to be filled by that. But I think the question is, what will change in your life that you would like to have change in your life? And can you use this moment in time to think about that and prepare for that? If there's ever a time when patience and love has to be at the very top of how we wake up and go to to bed at night, I think it's right now because people are anxious and people are fearful and that is inevitable. We're not used to this. We don't like to be isolated like this, but the thing that's going to keep us sane and maybe keep somebody who is really teetering on that edge sane is our ability to be patient and to be loving with them. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's uh, kind of times like these where it's really, you kind of want to stick together in solidarity because we're all going through this global event together. No one is untouched by this. And that's why virtual cocktail parties are a great thing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We need that. It's too easy to let anxiety rule. And I think we played the cards against humanity online with our with Jen and a bunch of people. There's like 20 people playing and laughing and having a good time. Probably spending more time with family virtually than we do physically because we're at a distance. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been absolutely wonderful. And for me as well. Thanks for okay. inviting me. Thank you so much for listening to Living Off Course. For links to any resources, books, etc. that we mentioned in the show, please check out the show notes on our website, livingoffcourse.com. And to stay up to date with our latest episodes, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and other podcasting platforms. Thank you so much again, and we look forward to seeing you next week.